Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, where you can hear classic recorded messages from Kimber Kaufman. Throughout these messages, Kimber faithfully follows the text to deliver God's message and to practically apply it to life. Satan in this world does everything it can to try to anesthetize our minds to keep us from understanding the horribleness of it. But the most terrible thing in all of life and all of eternity is to be alienated from God. We trust you will enjoy listening to these classic recordings. And in just a moment, we will join our teacher with the message. We believe that some of our listeners may have additional recorded messages from Kimber at home. If you have a cassette and would consider sharing a recording with our audience, please contact us through our email at theexpositoryword at gmail.com. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the Word, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Acts chapter 17. As you're turning to Acts chapter 17, you may be wondering... Something like this. I thought this was Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is the Sunday that the choir is supposed to sing about the resurrection. But what I mostly heard about was about the agony of Christ's death on the cross. How's come? Why is that? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 17. I want you to see something. In the book of Acts, in case you're not familiar, it's this. The first 30 years of the first church. Before there were all kinds of denominations and all types of different things going on, here is the first church. Let's look at what happened in the first church. Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 1. When they, talking about the Apostle Paul and Silas, when they had passed through Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Notice what happens. Go back to verse 3. Explaining and proving from the Scriptures. What were the Scriptures? The Old Testament. That's what they had. He was explaining and proving to a group of Jews that Jesus Christ must suffer and rise again. What I want you to see is this. The Apostle Paul went into the synagogue. There they gathered the Jews to worship on a Friday to a Saturday. Friday night at 6 o'clock to a Saturday at 6 o'clock. And do you know what he did? He opened up the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says, look, the Christ had to suffer. Why was one of the reasons he had to do that? Because the Jews thought, no, he was going to be a political Messiah that was going to bring a tremendous revolt against the Roman government. But here he shows, look, he had to suffer and rise again. And I want you to notice something, that in the book of Acts, and in the gospel message, suffering is always preached right along with the resurrection. It's easy today for people to want to put on their Easter hats, and to want to uh, be all dressed up, and almost have a social affair as they come to church, and it's the resurrection Sunday, and isn't this the Sunday that everyone is supposed to go to church, and that type of thing, and fail to realize that it's not just the resurrection that we need to understand, it's also the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ that must be understood. I want you to go back early with me in Acts chapter 2. You're in the book of Acts. Just go back to the second chapter. And I want you to see something. Here we have the very first sermon ever preached. The very first sermon ever preached in the the history of the church. And notice what happens. In Acts chapter 2, see what Peter says, starting with verse 22. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. First, they preached the life of Christ. 
Look at the next verse, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The death of Jesus Christ is preached in the very first sermon. Look at the next verse. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you, nor will you let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you fill me with joy in your presence. Go over to chapter 3. Look at the second sermon that was ever preached. You see the death and the resurrection of Jesus preached. Look at the second sermon ever preached in the history of the church. Chapter 3, right after there was a healing of a man at the gate, temple gate who had been crippled from birth. Pick up uh, the sermon starting in verse 13. Well, let's start with verse 12 of Acts chapter 3. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. You handed Him over to be killed, and you disowned Him before Pilate, though He had decided to let Him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised Him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Again, what do you see? The death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ being preached. In fact, if you go throughout the book of Acts, you will find something. There is not a sermon in the book of Acts without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ being preached. You can't get away from it. It is tremendously important for us to understand how this, the resurrection and the victory that we have over death is fantastic, but it must only be understood in the light of the suffering of what Jesus Christ went through for us. Look what Jesus said about this over in Luke chapter 24. Go over with me back a couple of Gospels to Luke in the 24th chapter. Here we are. The day of the resurrection, the first resurrection, and many of the followers, the disciples of Jesus Christ, are very discouraged and they're very sad because they had hoped that He had been the Messiah. That's what they were thinking. How could the Messiah, though, have died? They didn't understand that. Have you noticed what happens? Look at Luke chapter 24. And as they're walking along, they're explaining the situation about how upset they are. And then notice what happens in verse 25. He said to them, the Jews, that is Jesus, says to these two disciples who were very much discouraged as they walked down the road to Emmaus. Notice this. How foolish you are, verse 25, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Everyone get verse 26. Look at this. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? Notice again the emphasis on must. Didn't he have to? Now notice what? If there was ever a sermon I ever could have heard, if I get to I go into heaven and we get to have a, a, a replay of any of the sermons ever preached in the Bible, this is the first one I want to hear. Because notice what happens, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What's that referring to? The Old Testament. What's he saying? Jesus Christ, that the passage actually says, exegeted himself out of the Old Testament. He took himself and just extracted. Look, don't you see? Here's talking about the Messiah, how he had to suffer. Don't you see the lamb probably went to Leviticus as they slew, slew the lamb and they, and they sprinkled his blood and they burned him up. Don't you see? That's a picture of me, the lamb of God. Don't you remember what John the Baptist said? And all of a sudden their eyes, their ears start going, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole scripture starts coming together. Look over to verse 36 of that same chapter. 
While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Now the disciples have run back and they're meeting back at Jerusalem now with the other disciples. And they're all excited because they realized that they had seen the Lord. And while they were talking about this, verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Then he said said this to them. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still not believed because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And verse 45, please get this. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Again, Jesus says, Look, don't you understand? I had to suffer first or the resurrection has no meaning. Now, I want to talk to you just a moment about the idea of the suffering of Christ. I want you to go over with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and look with me to the 14th chapter. Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, we have a tremendous insight into what this means about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything I wish that we could understand, and that is this, understand what it meant for Jesus to suffer. And then I'm going to tell you something, friends, you will, as never before, appreciate and love the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Mark's chapter 14, this is the night before Jesus was going to die. Pick it up with me as we start reading in verse 32 in Gethsemane. You saw a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane there in uh, Jerusalem. Notice verse 32 of Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if, that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I want to tell you something. Did you ever think about this passage? G. Campbell Morgan says you can see the horrors of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane even more than you can while on the cross. Because here you see the Lord Jesus Christ who never flinched while talking about death. He told his, he told his disciples all of his life, someday men are going to take me and they're going to kill me. But all of a sudden, here it is, the night before he's going to die. And he's in great agony. And he's crying. In fact, notice, the disciples notice what agony he is in even before he says anything. If you'll notice with me, verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to become deeply distressed and sorrowful. Tremendously troubled. These are the intensive form in the Greek. It means to just be overwhelmed with sorrow. Let me ask you something. Why was Jesus like this? Why was Jesus so overwhelmed? Why was he so troubled because of his sin? Look what he even says in verse 34. I have sorrow to the point of death. One man said, my soul is the center of surging sorrows. His burden was so great that it possibly could have taken his life. We know from the Gospel of Luke that this is where he sweat drops of blood. He's in agony. Let me ask you something. Why? Why was he in agony? Because, friends, if you can come to understand this, you got a tremendous understanding of what the whole salvation message is about. One reason he was in such tremendous agony was because of this. He understood Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53 says, God the Father was going to lay upon God the Son the iniquity of us all. The Bible says that He was going to actually become sin for us. He who knew no sin was about to become sin for us. I want to tell you something. It may be hard for us to imagine, but the sinless, holy God, the Son of God, was about to become sin. And He wasn't afraid of death. Our Lord was a man's man when it came to facing death. He had nothing to fear there. But the thing that was so agonizing was this. He knew He was going to be separated from God the Father. He had never done that in the history of all the world. And now he was going to become separated. He was going to, he was starting to grieve because he understood that he was going to become the payment for man's sins. I want to tell you something. More than in any place of scripture do you see God's heart broken in the presence of human sin. If you ever want to know about how God feels about sin, you see it in Gethsemane. Because he's broken and he's grieving and it's agonizing and it's horrible. Oftentimes when I preach funerals or as a pastor, I have to go talk to people that there's been a terrible car wreck or a little boy has died or there's been some kind of terrible tragedy. I want to tell you something. It's a great thing to be able to walk in and not have to be in my own strength, but walk in and tell people about a Savior that went through this type of thing for them because the very center of Christianity is sorrow and suffering. And he went through this terrible agony. We often hear about, oh, they nailed the cross and they nailed the nails through his hands and they put the crown of thorns on his head and they whipped him and all this. I'm going to tell you something. The scripture talks about that and it was a horrible death. In fact, I can't hardly think of a worse way to die. The Romans made that up to, to, uh, to see just how horrible it was. But I want you to know something else. That wasn't the main idea of Jesus' death. I mentioned this Friday night, but from nine o'clock in the morning when they first put Jesus on the cross until 12 noon, Jesus Christ suffered horribly, but other people have suffered that bad before. You could possibly suffer as bad as Jesus did from 9 o'clock to 12 noon. But from 12 noon until 3 o'clock, my friends, I'm telling you something, no one has ever suffered like that. Because that is when darkness came over the earth. That is when God the Father actually made Christ sin. And Christ called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you actually see... The, the, the tremendous payment being played, being made, Jesus actually going through hell so that people that would believe in him wouldn't have to. The darkness, I think, is pictured of the Exodus plagues, where its darkness revealed the cause, the curse of God was on the land. And here, Jesus became a curse for us. And the cry of dereliction that Jesus cried. You know, Jesus always referred to God as my father, my father, my father, my father. You're going to see as we study John in the weeks to come, it got him in a lot of trouble. Because it wasn't the ethical code of conduct to call Jesus your father. But you know something? The only place in the Bible that he calls him God is right here. Because of the tremendous separation and the burden and great cry of dereliction. Because of sin, alienation from God by choice. The tremendous sorrow. Let me ask you something, friends. We've all at different times in our life gone through tremendous sorrow. What is blindness but is to be without sight? What is sickness but to be without health? What is poverty but to be without material possessions? But I want to ask you something. What is the greatest and ultimate sorrow that there ever will be in life? You know what it is? To be separate from God. Have you ever gone through a time where you've had a someone you very much love and all of a sudden you're separated because of a disagreement or because of some tragedy. That happens in life, doesn't it? 
and you're sickened and you're heartbroken and you, you agonize. And I've seen men that have gone through terrible struggles with their wife or their girlfriend and things, and they've lost weight. They've lost 40 or 50 pounds because they're so broken and they're so hurt over the fact that they're separated and, and there's, there's some kind of alienation between someone they love. My friend, I'm going to tell you something. Satan in this world does everything it can to try to anesthetize our minds to keep us from understanding the horribleness of it. But the most terrible thing in all of life and all of eternity is to be alienated from God. There is nothing more terrible than that. And our Lord actually became alienated. We can't even hardly understand how the hypostatic union could be like this, how, how, how the, uh, the Trinity could actually be separated. But it actually, for a time period, God turned his back on his own son. And why did he do it? Because two things. Number one, because sin is awful. Sin is terrible. We have a society that just teases with sin. You could turn on your television this afternoon and tonight, and you can watch story after story after story promoting sin and promoting all kinds of wickedness and getting you to laugh about it. My friend, I want to tell you something. Sin is so horrible, that's how come Jesus went through this terrible sorrow. That's how come there was the terrible payment on the cross. It's the most ugly, horrible thing imaginable. The reason we don't know that is because we're so full of sin, we can't see that. The second reason he did it was this. Though God is holy and though God must punish sin, and though there is absolutely no way to get around it, God is steadfastly set against sin, and I'm glad that he is, aren't you? What if he was a God that rewarded sin? What if he was a God that winked at it and says, oh, it's okay, go ahead and commit a little sin here, a little sin there, it's all right. Thank God that his holiness says he's set fast against sin. But I want to tell you something. Though we see the wrath of God and the terrible sufferings of Christ, the other thing we see is this, friends. We see the tremendous love of God. Because as much as he is set against sin, as much as you and I are alienated by our own nature from God, the thing that is so marvelous about this whole message this morning is this. He loved us so much that he provided a way and paid the price that only he could pay. If for some odd reason, we could just give a weak illustration to try to make this point, for some reason, I was some multi-quadrillionaire, all right, and you owed me making whatever salary you make right now. I, I found out for some different reason you owed me. I was all legal, and there's no way you could get away from it. You owed me $500 billion at 25% interest. And you say, well, let's see, maybe I can get 60 hours in next week. See? Sort of foolish, isn't it? You could never begin to pay back this price. And then all of a sudden I say, though you owe me this, and even though I hate the fact, I hate people that are indebted to me, yet I'm going to pay the price and it paid in full. God provided the price that only he could provide. The scripture says he must suffer. He suffered because it wasn't just something. I tell you, I, I hate this. I absolutely hate with all my heart the liberal gospel. The liberal gospel that's being preached today. What a wonderful example of love Jesus was. Come on, everyone, let's give Jesus a hand clap. Wasn't it wonderful that he died for us on the cross? I'm glad you're not clapping with me. See? That is not why he died. It wasn't just a wonderful example of love. It was a payment for our sins that separated us from God. And friends, there is no life apart from that. There is no forgiveness apart from that. But the scripture says also he must rise again. He must suffer, but he must rise again. What's that mean? Well, think about it. It's plainly reported in all of the Gospels that Jesus Christ rose. In Acts, it's mentioned in every sermon. And some of the strongest doctrine in the book of Romans is this. He was delivered up for our transgressions and He was raised again for our justification. That we could become right with God. 
In 1 Corinthians, there's a whole, the, one of the biggest chapters in the whole New Testament is given to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know what it says? If he isn't risen, we're in vain. Every bit of money that you have ever given to the cause of the gospel message or to the cause of Christ, you might as well have taken it and thrown it out on 96th Street if Christ is not risen. Philippians chapter 1 tells us that because Christ is risen, it's better to die than it is to live. Heard one man say, I told you on the radio, what can you do with the Christians? You can't do anything with them. If you kill them, they're better off. Why is that? Because of the resurrection. Hebrews talks about the ascended high priest that we have who's risen. Revelation, the entire future is based on the living and risen Christ. He's risen again. If you could comprehend that, if our faith weren't so small and you really truly believe that, can I tell you what would happen? The next time a tremendous problem or burden started coming into your life, you would face it and there would be the struggle of working through it and all of that which is part of the program God has for this life. Not that you would never have a problem or a sorrow. That's not what I'm saying. But I'll tell you what would happen. You'd have a greater longing for heaven and you'd realize that, oh yeah, although I work through these struggles and trials now in life, I know for sure that I have an inheritance reserved for me. I'm going to heaven forever. Now, you may be here and think something like this this morning. Yes, the gospel message is to preach the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my golly, I don't think I heard anything new this morning. Typical resurrection message, I guess. I believe the facts that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and is risen again. I do believe that. Pretty, pretty impressive stuff. But what bearing could that possibly have on me today? How can that help you live today? I want to close by showing you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Please listen carefully to this next couple of minutes. First off, the fact that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and is risen again has a tremendous impact upon your past. God, who knows your heart and will one day judge the secrets of men's hearts, we can cover up and look good here in front of people, but the God who knows our hearts and will judge those hearts one day, also has provided a way for us to be completely forgiven. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7 of Ephesians. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of His grace that He lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. Gone, 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 gone. All my sins are gone, as the little kids sing. I'll tell you something, there's a wonderful truth to realize this. The Psalm 32 says, How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I'll tell you something, you may not have caught it today in the musical, but I hope that you did, through some of the, especially some of the readings. And that is, did you catch in these hymn writers the unbelievableness of how great their sin was? See, we got a gospel being preached today in which people run to God because it's like getting a couple of extra charge cards free with 0% interest. You know, that's what he's going to do for you. And the people, they run to God for all types of other blessings. It's all types of external things. They run because they want good health. They run because they want this. They run because they want that. But I'll tell you something. The gospel that was preached in the Bible, men ran to God because they were fearful of their sin before a holy God. And as a result, as they saw the wonderful grace, our sins are forgiven. Oh, uh, oh, my sin. The bliss of, of this horrible thought. My sin, not just in part, but the whole. But it's gone. It's all gone. It's nailed to the tree. I owe it no more. All of a sudden, the person has realized, you know something? If any one of you, if any one of you 
wonder, I wonder why I've never caught on to the Christian life. I wonder how come I've never quite really seemed to, seems like some people there's just sort of a little something and they seem to really be motivated. I've never gotten there. I want to tell you there's one fundamental reason why people love to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what it is? Because they've seen themselves as sinners. And they've seen themselves as people that truly deserve to go to hell. I mean, not somebody else and not as a group. They saw themselves, just themselves. Jacob says, I'm the least, I I am unworthy of the least of your mercies. The Apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. Jeremiah, Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man undone. Jeremiah talks about the same thing. Peter says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. Were these guys that God used? Were these guys that lived lives of joy and abundance? Yes, but what was the one thing about all of them? They saw their sin, they saw themselves as one who had rebelled against God. And I'm going to tell you something, if you ever become poor in spirit, and then you realize the wonderful, loving forgiveness of God, you don't have to go around saying, come on now, won't you serve the Lord? Come on now, won't you get motivated? You won't have that problem because out of a heart full of love, you'll say, God, I give back to you the life I owe. And it's not some burden. It's a wonderful joy to live for him when you realize what the price has been paid for your sins. The second thing this gospel does that we're talking about, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is to give you hope for the future. Forgiveness for the past, but what about hope for the future? Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of which he has called you, the riches of his glory and his inheritance. How many of you get fired up right before you go on vacation? Hey, you got a three-week vacation going somewhere, and you're thinking, man, this is great. i got all my jobs done. My bills are paid. I'm going out. This is great. And what happens that last couple days? Remember what it was like the last day of school before summer vacation? You know, it was like, oh, yeah. You're all for, Why? Because you're looking forward to what's about to happen. You know what? One of the great reasons for joy in the Christian life is to know this. There is a real life with all types of wonderful things, not billowy clouds where we just sort of wander around and say, wow, we're in heaven. Wow, hi over there, Jim. How are you? You know, that's not what it is. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to be with God. It's a great place to have intellectual conversation and tremendous expansion and growth for the heart and the soul and the mind. Heaven's a great place to look forward to. Paul says, I'm praying that you would know the hope for the future. You've heard me say it before, but I told you about the Barnhouse illustration, Donald Gray Barnhouse. His wife died while he was in his 40s. He had two young kids. They were going to the funeral on a Sunday morning, as they were dri- or on a Saturday morning, as they were driving to the funeral. The sun was just coming up, and it was catching great shadows of a big semi-truck that they were following down the country road as they were driving back into Philadelphia. He was the pastor of the great Presbyterian church there. And right then, in the coldness, everyone's heart was sad because the mother had died. Finally, the son broke the silence. Daddy, what was it like for mommy when she died? What was it like, Daddy? The great preacher said, son, see that big semi in front of you barreling down the road? Yeah, you see that big shadow that's casting all the way over to those woods? Yeah, son, what would you rather be hit by, that truck or that shadow? Well, Daddy, that's easy. I'd rather be hit by the shadow. Everyone knows a shadow can't hurt you. He said, son, that's what it was like for mother when she died because Christ was hit by the truck for us. You see, friends, that is the reason we have hope because Christ has taken our place. But I said, what does this do for you today? It covers your past. I'll tell you something. If you're like me, you're glad that your past is covered. Is there anyone here that says, I have nothing to be ashamed of in my past? Please raise your hand. I'm glad my past is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that I don't have to keep going, oh Lord, what if I forgot to confess one of my sins? They're all gone, the Bible says. What about our future? We have a future that's reserved for us for sure. 
But one last thing is this. What about the presence? The present, excuse me. What about this right now? What about living today? Look down to verse 19 and 20 with me. Look at this of chapter 1 of Ephesians. And His incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. I can't think I was enjoy all week waiting to bring out verse 20 to you from Ephesians chapter 1. What a way to end an Easter Sunday message. But to tell you this, the, the, the passage is telling you this. If you want to know, it's, I've, I've carefully studied this, this is what it's saying. The power that brought Jesus Christ from the dead can be appropriated and can be placed in your life today to give you a victory, to give you strength, and to give you mighty power to live a godly life. That's why how can affect your life today. Because the power, you know, Jesus, or Paul doesn't pray for them to get more power. He just prays that they would come to understand the power that brought Jesus Christ from the dead. You know what the Bible says in Titus? It says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. There's a power that brought Jesus from the dead, changes your life now. Now I want to tell you something, listen carefully. A gospel that calls for a faith without a changed life is a shallow gospel. It's easy today for people to say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, I've just never really started living for God. I want to tell you something. The Bible says if we say that we know Him and keep not His commandments, we lie and do not the truth. The Bible says you try to show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works, because faith without works is dead. What's works? Godliness, Christian service, Desire for God with all of our hearts. And I want to tell you this. The new life that you have in Christ Jesus means that you change. Listen, I'm afraid people are deceived today. They think they've come to know Christ. They think that they know what salvation is all about. But they really don't. They can claim, oh, but I had this wonderful experience when I walked an aisle when I was 10 years old. That doesn't matter. Is the power of the resurrection at work in your life now? I don't mean that you're perfect as far as the way you live. But I mean, are you seeing progress, change, growth, a greater love for Christ? Can you honestly say the desire of my heart more than anything else is to live for him who died for me? If you can't say that, don't deceive yourself. You may be on the way to hell, friends. Please don't deceive yourself. Because the scripture says this, the new life that Christ brings changes us. Now, you may not understand all the implications of the Lordship of Christ at conversion, but true saving faith always produces a heart that knows and feels its responsibility to the ownership of Christ over your life. A changed life is the strongest present-day evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're going to hear a man this afternoon at 3 o'clock give his testimony of coming to know Christ just in the last six or seven weeks. He's going to tell you of the changed life we live in a watered-down age. America is full of a liberal gospel. You turn it on, and all the gospel is is what it will do for you. But I'm telling you something, friends. The true gospel changes your life. Don't listen to what you say. Listen to how you live. That is the real evidence of whether you know the true gospel message. And listen carefully. I say this painfully. I don't mean to chide. I mean to just exhort you to wake you up. Listen carefully. The person who complacently trusts that God's mercy will be his salvation will find that God's wrath 
is what is really extended towards him. We're going to find out that the true faith, the kind that saves you from hell, is also the kind that helps you live a godly life now. My friends, may your faith in the finished work and the present living Christ be proved real by a godly life full of assurance that your past has been forgiven, full of hope that your future inheritance is secure, and full of power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so much need your strength, the very strength that Paul prayed that the people would understand we need it. I need it. We need to understand the mighty power that brought Jesus from the dead and how that appropriates us a changed life. Our Father, we thank you so much that your love is so unbelievable as we consider it today. Though vile in our sin and though steadfast in our rebellion, yet you're persistent in your love and mercy towards us. Thank you so much for that. It would be my prayer today before you, our holy God, that we get to address this Father, that you would use what has been spoken today in both in song and in this message and not allow the words to fall idle where people maybe make some type of little desire to maybe change, but it never quite comes about. May you really show the power of the resurrected Christ by changing people's lives, even those that may come to him for salvation today or Christians that have not been appropriating that power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic recorded messages from Kinder Kaufman. Take care.